Today on Rebuilders, we continue with this exploration of the various forms of individualism, but how a platform society is emerging and causing issues in um, society. Yes, we are looking at, I think, what is the next iteration, Mm. Um, the platform society, the way that sort of significantly large digital platforms are connected to big global corporations are really changing the shape of society. What does that mean for individuals? What does that mean for the church? We're going to be exploring this and more in what I think is a good episode. It is a great episode and we're ready to get into it. Welcome to Rebuilders. My name's Liddy and I'm here with Mark and Daniel. How are you both today? I'm good, thanks. Yeah. Good to have you back. Yes. Mm. Uh, Nice to be back here at the desk. Well substituted in Daniel last week. Yeah. Mm. Super sub. I tried my my best Liddy impression. You sounded just like me. Did I? Yeah. Yeah. That was was amazing. (laughs) That's a little concerning, isn't it? (laughs) I do I do actually do an impression of Liddy, which I won't do on the podcast. It's terrible. It's (laughs) terrible. It's it's not even I can't even call it an impression. It's just more of an insult. Angry 70-year-old woman. (laughs) (laughs) From somewhere Um, in England. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's just bringing back to to memory. Uh, Yeah, so I was doing a bit of work on the 24-7 Prayer Australia National Gathering. Yes. um, 13th and 14th of October. Correct. For those who are interested. Yes. Uh, we're excited. We're doing Leaders Day actually in the in the lead up to it on the on the Friday. So mm-hmm. that would be good. Yes. Um, so the thirteenth has um, a leadership focus. Um, so for those of you who listen to this, yeah, um, that are in that position, mm. it'll be yeah, really helpful um, stuff. And not just not just people speaking, but there'll be sort of uh, panel and conversation opportunities. Yeah, yeah. So definitely something to set aside the time for. But uh, today, I'm, I'm going to be running a um, pastry booth. You'll be running Don't a pastry say, booth. See, this is this is the problem with rebuilders. You joke about that, <laughs> and you'll have people like flying in from Dunedin, <laughs> like wanting that. Where's Daniel's pastries? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Don't, wait, Don't. are you going to be making them, or are you going to be sourcing them from somewhere else? No, I'll source them. Okay, yeah, probably probably a good option. <laughs> no, no for, offense, for, I've for never disc- had your pastries. Full disclosure, I won't be doing that. Good, okay. thank you. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> but it's still worth coming to the conference. Yeah. yeah. And there's no doubt places to obtain pastries in the vicinity. Oh, no, there will be. Yeah. yeah. It's Melbourne. Yeah. Far from Loon? Uh, it's a few blocks in the CBD on the okay. Friday and mm. then on the Saturday it'll be in Carlton and there's a number of uh, good spots great. in Carlton. Okay. So, yeah, great locations. Good. Right in the thick of it. All right. Rebuilders. Yes. That's what yeah. we are. Like, yeah. 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 Yes, yes. yeah, here we are on the podcast. Uh, see, I have a week off and now I've, I've lost my train of thought <laughs> no. in general. No, I haven't really. Uh, we have been covering a bit of ground um, over the last th- few episodes, sketching out uh, the uh, history, I suppose, of first, second and third individualism. Mm. Uh, and last week you guys um, unpacked those uh, the power shifts centers and the centres of power yeah, yeah. Um, using the metaphor of the City of London, mm. uh, and you talked about that that space in between uh, mm. those, those big uh, centres of power and the people mm. and um, how corporations are kind of filling that, mm. that space in between. Mm. And so we're going to be exploring that a little bit more today. Yes, yes. Um, in kind of under the uh, umbrella term of a platform society. Yes. Um, and so a platform society 
is kind of a response to the second individualism and the issues that were occurring in society as as, Mm. um, a result of that. But it's also creating its own issues and essentially birthing uh, this third individualism Mm. that Mm. we are experiencing now. So that's what we're going to be exploring today. Where do you want to start, Mark? Well, let me sketch that out for people. Um, uh, That's a good precis. Um, So really the sort of two concepts that you brought together there come together in this concept. So the first concept is the fact that as the modern world has developed, we've seen a shift from a first individualism um, where very much people sort of created mediating institutions to deal with the effects of the isolation, disconnection that people often find um, mm-hmm. as they sort of moved into cities and moved off the land and moved away from received sense of identity. They created these voluntary associations. Um, and uh, we talked about how that could be anything from a benevolent society, a coffee house, a trade union, even the family, um, and even uh, you know churches and, and discipleship movements and all the Christian uh, organisations that many people listening will have been a part of, are a part of, uh, emerge in that time. Then we talked about the second individualism um, and we talked about the fact that uh, you have this increasing isolation where really the second individualism was defined by people escaping those mediating institutions. And so you've seen the decline of, yeah, everything from, yeah, in, you know, people being part of things like Rotary, mm. uh, Kiwanis. Is that Kiwanis? Is Ki- uh, Kiwani, Kiwanis? Kiwanis? I uh, have Kiwani. never they, heard of that It's a vol- voluntary association. Mm-hmm. So, okay. you, know, you know, and yeah, the sort of organisations that would meet, that were run by volunteers on a Thursday night somewhere mm. uh, to, yeah, even the family, you know, you've seen um, you know decline in its structural integrity as compared to in the past. And, you uh, Part of this too is that people are on the project of self-improvement and um, working on self and really the sort of central organising principle that we also saw as part of the neoliberal economic project was that the sort of prime organising unit of society was an individual who was unfettered from uh, restrictions and was able to sort of pursue an, a life where really they're sort of defined by con- consumption and the whole of life was measured by sort of economic metrics. Um, so that's the sort of first concept. Last week we talked also about, um, uh, you know, these different centres of power that have tended to shape our society, whether it be crown and received orders, the church, uh, parliament. Um, and then I talked about really the sort of rise of not really just the market, but actually sort of corporations and corporate power, global finance. Uh, there was some questions around, are there other ones? I might touch on that on subscriber chats, uh, not here. So if you're interested in subscriber chats, please do subscribe. And uh, uh, I'll try and address that perhaps after the episode. But uh, essentially what I want to do is I want to follow on from that. So the argument I made last week was that of all those different centers of power, many of which have held power or power has been defined by imbalances or competitions between those centers of power, that actually really the City of London, which was my sort of shorthand for corporate power, has really won. Mm. And isn't that the defining uh, sort of social force, uh, particularly at a moral level and not just an economic, but also a moral, social, cultural level. It's really, de- you know, really defining things. And so what I want to talk about, yeah, is, is really where we are now and the rise of the platform society, which is, is the term used by multiple people and the idea of a platform currently preaching on a series on platforms. Yeah. And there's so many meanings to platforms. So if you're interested, uh, check out the Red Church um, uh, sort of uh, sermon uh, podcast, which we have. And uh, 
Yeah. So I want to get back to the second individualism. And uh, in the second individualism, it was very clear that there were a couple of forces at play. One, you had the economic neoliberal force, which was sort of ameliorating uh, those mediating institutions and wanted to find a way for business and corporate power to sort of operate without that sort of sense of being held back by union activity or restricted by institutional limits. And really, the idea was that the market had this sort of almost magic to it. And you look at people like von Mises and uh, Hayek, you know, almost saw the market almost in this sort of spiritual sense that if it could just be let go, uh, it could do its thing. But they also believed that the government also should be, you know, actually involved. This is contrary to popular belief, it wasn't about the complete disappearance of the the, 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 the government. The government actually should ensure that the market is, that society is set up, an international society is set up in a way that the market can flow and do its thing. But what that also meant was that those media institutions began to disappear. So we saw the media institutions disappear. There was an idea that you could almost just bring the market to people without any sort of like intermediary middlemen, uh, to put it in that way. At the same time, this was causing increased in the second individualism, so social isolation. Mm. So one of the things that we've noted is the rise of social media. And I've mentioned it here before, but Shoshana Zuboff makes the argument in her book, The Rise of Surveillance Capitalism, that in some ways that the rise of social media giants and social media platforms, everything from the early days of MySpace and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And, you know, you now see the internationalization with WeChat and, and TikTok, there's different platforms in places like Brazil and Turkey. But the rise of these sort of platforms was actually a response to the increased isolation that people were feeling. Mm. And this was the market coming in and offering a solution. So what I want to talk about is I want to talk about the next level of that, which is what happens when you have it moved beyond simply a way of connecting with each other to actually becoming one of the dominant organizing principles uh, in society. So what I'm arguing here today is that we are now, and you, for those who've also followed us for a long time and listened to some of my commentary around gray zone, the fact that we're the in-between stage, in-between eras, it's quite possible, and I'm not sure, but I'm wondering whether the next era is actually the platform society era. Mm. So inevitably, what I argued in a non-anxious presence is you move through these periods of decentralization and the early internet has caused this decentralization, but then inevitably in network theory, you return to a re-centralization mm. you know, that's happening. And Samuel Berger wrote an interesting article the other day um, called, I'll tr we'll try and put it in the, in the show notes in the, in the subscriber email, the centralized internet. And his argument is that what we're actually seeing is a re-centralization of the internet. So to tell this story, uh, you know, probably what is also been influencing this conversation is if you look at what's happened in China with the internet, China mm. has been operating behind a great firewall and um, which is in a sense uh, kept it sort of uh, quarantined from the Western internet. And it's interesting, there's lots of conversations about whether TikTok should be banned in the West and whether that's right or wrong. Uh, the reality is that Google, Instagram, Twitter, um, CNN, or many of these things are either heavily censored or banned in China in, yep. as internet presences. So in China, you have these very large platforms, you know, uh, some of them created by Jack Ma, and um, uh, I think it's the Alpha Ant, is the Ant Group, I think is, is sort of overarching um, sort of name for his different platforms. But you have things like WeChat and you have like basically payment systems, social media, video, all of these different entities that you would need to be part of a society operating on gigantic digital platforms. Mm -hmm. 
And this is something which has very much inspired people in the West. And Elon Musk um, recently has rebranded Twitter as X, mm. which still is not used to. Uh, but effectively, this is not just about a rebrand of Twitter to you know have some cool new name. It's actually not that I don't think it's very cool, but <laughs> it's actually he's also talking about he wants it to become a financial hub. He wants it to basically look like what Jack Ma created in China. So what you're seeing is into this empty space where in the past you would go to a voluntary association, you go to Rotary on Thursday night and on Friday morning you would go and have a chat to the bank teller in your actual physical bank in a physical location and you know you might go and watch a television show that's actually a locally produced news program in your city. All of a sudden into those spaces as that's been sort of like corroded by the last 30 years of sort of neoliberal economics and sort of radical individualism is that into that space you have now these platforms delivering you things. Mm. So if you think about this, just, just think in the last few years, you know, how many people on here order something on Amazon? And, you know, that, the delivery on that can be from a day to in some cities the, that day. Uh, you know, people all of a sudden, um, you know, you don't ring a taxi service, you ring you know, Uber or you ring DD. Um, you may not go to your local restaurant. You just order Uber Eats or McDonald's on the go, uh, DoorDash or is DoorDash Delivery Roo. There's all these different versions of this. Um, but effectively what this is doing is it's trying to create a seamless experience from the very big. And if you go back to my sort of um, map, if you had a whiteboard and you would progress through the different stages of individualism at the first stage of individualism or the first individualism, up the top you'd have like perhaps the state or, you know, the established church. Mm. And then down the bottom you have individuals and those voluntary associations actually were in the middle and they tried to mediate. That's why they're called mediating institutions. Um, in a sense, what's happening in the second individualism is almost you'd sort of make them a bit more translucent, they've become weaker, but as they've disappeared into that space comes the platform society. And uh, you've seen the rise of them. So I think this is where people have got to think beyond just social media. I know many people watch things like The Social Network or they've perhaps read books like Nicholas Carr's um, The Shallows and we're very concerned about the effect of phones and social media. But this is the next phase of this. This is actually the phase where you have these gigantic entities that are doing more than just providing you a social connective point. They're providing so many of your everyday needs all mm. in one place. Okay. Well, with all of that uh, sort of sketched out, what's the the impact of that shift? Yeah. Manifold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let me just go through some of them. So number one, um, it's changing the nature of work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, increasingly we talk about a gig economy um, and other people have spoken about the precarious – I can never say the word. Precariousness. The pre no, the precariat. Oh, the precariat. So there's a book, The Precariat. I've forgotten the author. It's an English book. And basically talked about almost with this platform society, you're seeing the rise of a new class. It's not a working class, but rather it's people whose jobs are characterized by a precarious nature. Mm. Um, the DoorDash delivery person who um, doesn't have – you know, healthcare, union representation, they're working for a large corporation that's a digital platform in another country mm -hmm. that's provide their own bike. You know, if they get hit in, in there, you know, there's very little protection for them. And so you're seeing this growing um, precarious, oh no, pre pre uh, I can't say that word. Precariat. 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 I've read it. 
precariat. Precariat. Precariat guy, class. Guy standing. Guy standing, yes. Is that the guy's name? That's the guy's name. Yes, the yes. last guy standing. What an uh, excellent uh, name. Excellent name, guy standing. Um, and uh, so, yeah, effectively um, you – you have that change in the nature of work. And I think this is also contributing to increasing inequality. So you've got mm. people who are making tremendous amounts of money of this. So what you can see is in a society, you can see a society that's GDP is doing well and, and or seemingly doing well. There seems to be productivity growth, but it's happening in a very small concentrated people at the top. You know, and, and Instagram is an example of this. You know, the, Instagram actually had, a, I don't know now, but before it sold to, to Facebook, it actually had a very tiny, tiny um, uh, like workforce mm. and a huge amount of money. I think Andrew Keane talked about that in one of his books. He, he talked about the fact that, you know, he compared, say, Kodak going out of business and I think it was in Rochester, New York State, where, you know, like 40,000 jobs or something that kept a whole town going, whereas you got Instagram, which is even bigger. And it was like, it's something crazy, like 15 people working for yeah. 13. 13. 13, yeah. yeah. Wow. Crazy. Um, so more, less people getting more money, but then more people working this very sort of like, um, yeah, precarious kind of employment. Yeah. So that, that's one. The second thing is what it does is it brings geopolitics into your backyard. Mm. So, for example, you know, the talks on TikTok ban, um, the fact that in Australia we have very large American corporations, which, you know, are they looking out for our local interests? Um, and even in America, you could argue, are they looking out for California's interest over other states? Um, so you've got these very large entities that are translocational. So that means they're not subject in the same way to the local laws, mm. which are meant to keep these people accountable. Um, and then it also means that if you're in a great power competition, say between China and America, um, you know, what happens if TikTok just gets stopped and you're a local person who's perhaps got a business that's using TikTok that yes. has huge implications. But I think what it also does is it means that we become more socially disconnected. You just think about, you know, if you regularly go to your local, I don't know, Thai takeaway place, you know, you go to your local Thai restaurant and every second Friday night you get your, I don't know, um, Masaman curry. Ooh, and good choice. Love the Masaman curry. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you talk to them, you get to know them, you meet people at your local coffee shop, uh, you go to your local bookstore and order a book in and you come back two weeks later and get it. Whilst perhaps there was not the ease of just having it delivered to you, all of these do fray at the social fabric. Yes. So if the second individual has a second individualism, perhaps frayed at the social fabric of, you know, you go to that. You don't go to that voluntary group on a Thursday night and go to the local Rotary Club and meet people, or uh, you don't turn up to church. You know, every week mm. you, you you go to small group every five weeks. So mm. you phrase it. You know, your connections. Then you take it even less where you're just bumping into people barely at all. Yes. You know, and I remember like, I don't know, 15 years ago, there was the talk of the Japanese phenomenon of hikikomori, which were these people who just had retreated almost into a exile in their own homes. And yeah. they would go into their bedrooms and this is when sort of cable internet came into Japan and you saw this whole generation, particularly of young men, who just disappeared off the face of the earth and their mm. mothers would put food at their sort of door and wow. they wouldn't see them. And I remember reading these stories in Japanese cities of like mothers who, and no one wanted to confront it, so they didn't talk to them. And yeah, these these people had disappeared. And I think we've sort of almost seen the hikikomorization of um, 
the whole of society now, and, and maybe it's not your bedroom, but it's your house where this stuff can get delivered. Now, part of this was also accelerated by COVID. Mm. And, you know, like, I mean, I had more Uber Eats in COVID because you didn't want to go to the restaurant, you know, but in a sense, it's fraying. And it's really interesting. I was, I was just in a part of Melbourne yesterday and hadn't been there for, um, I've driven through there, but I hadn't sort of got out and gotten a coffee. And I just noticed how quiet everything was. Mm. Lots of solitary people sort of sitting and moving around. And, you know, I think this is the next intensification of loneliness. And on Sunday morning, someone sent me a, an article um, in our local uh, Australian sort of national broadcaster had written an article. I think it's one in three Australians are now feeling significant disconnection. Yeah, wow. So the platform society significantly disconnects, um, but at the same time, it also – uh, it, 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 in a sense, means gives this impression that everything can be gotten through some kind of ease. To just like d- the idea of delaying gratification has disappeared. Yes. Um, and uh, Derek Thompson wrote an article about eighteen months ago in I think the Atlantic, where he talked about the fact that most of these big platforms, from Peloton to Uber, were all running at a massive loss. Effectively, so many of these big um, uh, companies uh, were funded by the era of virtually interest-free loans. Yes. And, you know, we saw the sort of uh, Silicon Valley bank go under recently. And part of that was that so much of Silicon Valley was funded by cheap money. Uh, it was bought on debt, really, is how we're putting it. Mm-hmm. And so they could operate as these business models that, in a sense, operate in a kind of fantasy land. Um, so now like Uber is, you know, this discussion of Uber is now costing more and more and it's almost costing in some American cities what a taxi would cost because the yeah, age of uh, cheap interest rates are over. But while that age may be going, the mythology that it's created in our mind over the last five or six years that I can just have anything uh, virtually, you know, real cheap right to my door or downloaded to my device without implications has changed how we see how the world operates. So increasingly, not only people are more socially disconnected from each other, there's a sense that we're more afraid of the difficult. So alongside that, there's the rise of ghosting where people first talked about that in dating, just they're connecting with someone and they just stop talking to them. We're seeing that in friendships, in families, in churches where people just drop off. And it's almost like cutting someone out of the network and that it's just too difficult as well. So it's it's not only fraying the social network, it's even fraying our social skills of how to deal with the network. One more. Um, Henry Kissinger and Eric Schmidt, Kissinger, the famous uh, you know US diplomat, is a, I think he's a century old now been in the center of pretty much everything in the last half century in American political life. Uh, And then the head of Google, Eric Schmidt, wrote a book on AI. And one of the points they made in this is they looked less at the AI sentient, you know, nature. It's like AI going to become alive and we're all going to be living in the sort of plot of Terminator. What they did look more at was the fact that if the dominant institution now in society is these platforms, what do they look like when they're AI driven? So their money now and their their wealth is more around information. We've just come out of the age of oil and oil and energy still is hugely important. That's not going away anytime soon. But what you're seeing is the oil boom created these massive companies like Chevron, Halliburton, and so much of geopolitics was defined, the Middle East, you know, South America, Venezuela, uh, by 
the quest for oil and the political instability it brought. What what does that look like when now these giant platforms are actually working off information and instead of like digging like um you know like wells in Saudi Arabia, what do they actually look like when their primary way of getting information is just continuing to milk us for algorithmic information? So the more information we're giving them, the more powerful they are, and they're more able to use that for uh, developing. AI. There is a theory that 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 Musk and you know allegedly is bought Twitter to basically use it as a starter set for human interactions to create more better AI for his Neuralink projects mm. and so mm-hmm. on. So what does the future look like if no longer the and this is why I did last week. We're yeah. so used to looking at the government, the role of, you know, organized state-based religion. Um, you know, the voice of the people. What if, what happens when, and then you bring in that city of London. So now add on to that. What does it look like when you've got massive transnational AI driven digital platforms that have incredible surveillance uh, ability to farm us for massive amounts of information and becoming more and more uh, powerful the more information we give them? That's the effect that's having socially. Ooh, that is. A very epic overview. How what about I specialize in? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it could be a subtitle. Um, rebuilders, epic overviews. Um, my question is: if this is if this is all the, the case, what does yeah. the, what are the implications for discipleship? Yeah, yeah. So bring it back to the the sort of main meat and bones of what we're looking at here. I'll try and do it in. A couple of ways. So, so number one, what this means is that I think one of the great challenges, you know, people talk about um, secularization and um, one of the interesting things about secularization. So I've mentioned on here uh, Ronald Inglehart who, who basically came up with the theory that societies as they become more individual um, and more less um, basically wealthier that they then press into greater secularism. And he had this famous chart where he sort of looked at, you know, how traditionalist society was, how secular it was, how individualistic and how communal it was. And so he was, he was plotting this for a number of years. Mm. And, um, you know, so for example, you know, so the Scandinavian nations or Australia and New Zealand tend to be more individualistic, you know, less communal, less traditional, et cetera, et cetera. And then you could sort of track this right down to um, in countries in Africa and so on. Um, really interesting uh that what they're finding is that the world is actually sort of he, he passed away, but there's people continuing his project. Is mm. the world is reconfiguring in a really interesting way? But one of the great lessons that you're seeing is that the West is becoming uh, more secularized at an incredibly rapid rate. The United States sort of secularization is like catching up to Sweden, according to this, um, which is interesting in a very short time. Mm. But then a lot of the the countries that are actually so like there's less people in poverty now. They're not necessarily secularizing because they've kept the communal element. Um, so what it's saying though is that the more that people push into a very individualistic lifestyle and are not in communal settings, yeah. that seems to be the determining point of the progression of secularism. So what we're seeing, does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So the more individualistic we are, the more we're pursuing the individual project of sort of self-expression, and the less we're in social communal settings. People tend to operate more secularly. Um, so what this means is 
the majority of people, particularly if you're in a developed world country, and I include everything from a Brazilian city to a South Korean city to an American city to a city in Scotland uh, or the Netherlands, is that you are going to see your people increasingly move into to greater individualistic social environments. Yeah. So if you just look statistically, the dominant household increasingly emerging in developed countries is, is one person living alone. Secondly, um, uh, the data we just saw, it's interesting that Australia, there's another article this morning, Australia um, is moving into a massive divorce boom. And one of the reasons that they're looking at this, this is all just happened in the last sort of 12, 12 months, two years, mm-hmm. is they're saying, and one of the first things they talked about, and this is again, our national broadcaster talking about this, I think it was, or was it, I can't remember where it was, but they said that people are increasingly looking at their lives through this sort of individual self-creation project. Yes. And so therefore, relationships which limit their options are now being looked at negatively. Yeah. So we're going from I don't want to be part of the voluntary association of Rotary on a Tuesday night to now I don't even know if I want to be with someone because it's limiting me. Yes. So what that means is uh, so many of our church, this sort of goes in my second point, so many of our churches are actually set up for families mm-hmm. and it's, you know, people sort of like um, just assume that. Uh, but you sort of take it forward and if current trends continue – uh, you're going to see churches primarily of single people, but not just single people. You're going to see churches primarily of, oh, let me just say that first. So single people tend to move around more. There's less keeping people in place if yep. kids are at a school and so on. So you're going to see greater turnover in churches. And also you just think about the fact that biological growth, what it brings for churches. So for example, uh, in 1960, so, so just say you plant a church now and you get it to 100 people. Now, if you plant a church in Melbourne in 1958 and you get to 100 people and just say you've got, you got a bunch of young adults who are between 18 and 21 and it's 100 people and then there's pretty much guaranteed that within about seven years, most, most of those people will be married, most of them have like 2.5 kids. Mm. So without in bringing another single person to your church, your church is 300 people. Yeah. So like we, we – often joke about you know, your church is just growing through biological growth. That's going to radically stop happening. Mm. And that's an assumed growth that we assume there. So I talked about the baby boomer apocalypse that's coming if people yeah. go back. We're about to hit in churches the demographic decline apocalypse. Mm. So you're going to see baby boomers retire and retire to the kingdom of God in its fullness coming. But you're also going to see the growth that has kept coming because people having children, that is massively dropping off in the left world. So if you look particularly, I mean, it's all over the world, but if you look at the developed world countries, the demographic decline of people not having children is staggering. Like mm. It is staggering. And I've quoted here before, the Japanese president recently said, you know, Japan's about to become dysfunctional as a country because of demographic decline. So that's going to hit churches hugely soon and that's going to cause rapid decline. Even if you continue to do evangelism, mm. the baby boom apocalypse and, and that that's going to hit. And and I think I think people people like people need to think about how that's going to make people think differently and, and people operate differently. So I think yes. very few people have thought about that. And, you know, people may have thought, oh, we have a singles ministry, but I don't think they've thought about the structural reality of what that means going forward. Yes, that was what I was just about to ask because I feel like, you know, um, there there is an, a growing, like, desire for, do you have a singles ministry? Do you have, you know, a ministry to young young couples or 
that kind of thing. Um, but is that is that the answer, or is it more nuanced than that? Um, I mean, I think I'll, there's going to be a multiplicity of pastoral responses yeah. um, to that, and I think so. Number one is we're going to need to be more aware of it. Yeah, we're also seeing a delayed adolescence as well. Mm. So, in a sense that you know, I've had this sort of people have joked to me, young adults ministry now, like where, where does that end? You know, they were yeah. joking it's the early 30s, and now people are like, is it the early 40s? But I think what that's more about is actually people trying to respond, perhaps intuitively to the reality of when people are single for longer, you know, because yeah. in the past, young adults ministry was 18 to 24, totally. you know, but yeah. it's, it's spreading out. But I think what I'm saying as well is this is going to affect your church size, your tithing, how you do ministries. There's significant structural implications that it's going to have that people have not thought about, um, particularly too in countries without large immigration. I mean, in Australia, we have large immigration, which I think is, is, you know, been a real uh, benefit to the church in in people coming, but particularly yeah, if you don't, and that's what that's what so many countries are trying to do at the moment. Like even Japan, I was reading fascinatingly is is doing immigration and fascinating. Like Americans are migrating to Japan, which is really fascinating. Mm. Um, so you know, if you if you take that out of the equation, there's a significant cultural crisis coming, and the church needs to get its its head around that. Um, yeah, so. Um, what was it going to go? Oh, on the, and, the, and the sort of, I guess the third element is what does it look like when I remember, you know, when I started youth ministry, young adults ministry, basically what I used to do is if you could just get a bunch of young adults in the room, the magic happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> people didn't have, you know, like they just wanted to socially connect with people. They want to be around other people like them. There was just energy. There's probably hormones, you know, raging. There was just a sense of like energy. Um, I don't see that anymore in mm. lots of places. There's actually a sense that it's not, remember, it's not just the fraying of the social like connection points. It's people are losing the ability to know how to talk to others. Yeah. And, um, you know, like lots of people, parents have, have mentioned to me that you got to pick up kids now who are like Gen Z or Gen Z from parties. And at these parties, no one talks. People sit on their phones. Mm. So the ability to have these social skills that many perhaps listening take for granted or perhaps some of you will go, oh, actually, I don't know if I've got them, to make mm. a phone call, to have a conversation with a stranger, to do small talk, to go up and meet a few people, to build social connection, this is fraying at a rapid rate. Yes. So I'm wondering too that part of perhaps what church is needs to do in the future is just as in the past we might say, here's how – you can help get your finances in a better state or here, mm. perhaps here how you work on your relationships. And the assumption there was the relationships are perhaps family or marriage. Now it just could be here's how you actually build relationships. Yes. Um, because what's going to happen is increasingly, say, going to someone's house on a, on a Wednesday night and hang out with another bunch of people to talk about the Bible, pray and worship is going to seem incredibly intimidating to people who don't have the social skills to do that. Yeah. And I also wonder, um, you mentioned it earlier, how much the the fear of things being difficult or challenging plays yes. into this as well. Yes. Um, you know, when you have grown up in a setting that has created a safety net and you don't have to feel scared or like confronted by anything or you don't have to have hard conversations, that in and of itself is 
preventing people from being able to have good relationships because you can't have a good relationship without having hard conversations. 100%. And this is where the ghosting thing comes in. So you're seeing this like just people then just disappear or or they don't want to face it or they just are switching off. It's like like people are a button they can just Mm. press and they disappear. And, you know, like and mediation, everything becomes mediation now. Like it's interesting my kids like primary school, there's like peer – all the kids are doing mediation in, in like they've now got peer mediation at, yeah. at lunchtime, you know. So it's it's this sense that people are trying to address it, but it's being addressed almost sort of bureaucratically, you know what I mean? So there's very just skills that people had in the past around relationships just don't seem to be there in the same way. So I think, yeah, we've got to, we've got to think ahead again too. As I always say in this, we don't have all the answers. Um, we're trying to get people to have the right conversations before we get to the answers and the right analysis. But I think there's some opportunities here. Mm. Like, like I think there's some genuine opportunities. Um, it's interesting that a lot of Australian churches, if you look at them, were built in that sort of post-war boom from well, end of World War II um, to you know when Billy Graham came here in 1959. There was sort of a mini revival after his evangelistic ministry. And the classic Australian church built in that time was, you know, maybe about 150 in the auditorium, but they all had basketball courts and mm-hmm. they all had tennis courts, basketball or tennis courts. So there are sort of these social meeting points. And I wonder if we're going to see that again, mm-hmm. you know, like I wonder if we're going to see these ability. Like part of me, uh, there's a lot of um, churches in Australia have English language classes for, for migrants coming in to, yep. to socially connect. What if we need to just have conversation classes? For anyone mm. <laughs> coming mm. in or something like that. So I think as well, thinking about this, thinking ahead uh, is really key. Just going to add one more thing as well. I think we need to also be aware of how the Platform Society, and we've talked about this before, particularly after COVID, uh, informs the structure of church. Mm. And I think there's a lot of churches that are thinking, well, in a sense, like what will just be the platform. Uh, we'll be the digital platform that distributes content and then people where they are will just receive that content and listen to it in their home or whatever. Mm. But I just increasingly start to have a sense that that alone without the rebuilding of that social fabric and that social connectivity is not going to give you the context to do discipleship as the church has always done it because you don't have those hard conversations. Yeah, exactly. You don't meet people who are different to you. Yeah. Uh, growing up, sitting next to older people, sitting next to people from all different countries, sitting next to people who are you know, economically disadvantaged, sitting next to people who have all kinds of challenges in their lives, I think has made me, you know, in church, has made me a much better person. But when you're just the danger is the algorithm puts you in a silo and the danger is that some of our structures of church can do that as well. Yes. So I think how this is shaping church as well, we've got to be aware, just, just be aware that we don't fall into a pattern that reflects the rest of society and that middle space, which the church used so successfully in particularly Great Awakening. Mm. And, uh, you know, again, too, so I think we're back at, a, a you know, the challenge of the church in the Great Awakening with a, a, the first individualism and a rapidly changing social order. How do we take the benefits of it? Because they did. They, yes. they, the letter writing and the fact that people were more mobile meant that new discipleship connections could happen. How do we take the benefits? Because, again, we are putting our content here and there's people listening everywhere yeah. from Oslo to, you know, in South America listening to this. Brilliant. But also, how do we do that and not lose out that vital embedded discipleship context that can only happen in life on life? Mm. Well, I, I feel like you've you've opened a can of worms um, that it'll be good to explore in your uh, respective contexts. But um, yeah, 
please also feedback thoughts and and ideas that you are um, encountering as well um, because it's 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 a project for all of us as the church in this time. So um, anything else anyone wants to add before we wind up? No. No? All right, great. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, thank you, Daniel. And thank you, listeners. Again, Mark mentioned there in the middle of the episode that if you want a list of the uh, – books and resources that were mentioned during this uh, episode today, you can subscribe via our website, which is rebuilders.co, and we send out a um, an email with a list of those things and we also chat and respond to a question or two that may have come in from our subscribers. So um, get onto that and we'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.